Research is a podcast that explores current nutritional research and health studies. Our lawyer says we have to let you know that this podcast is for entertainment, educational, and informative purposes only. If you have any health questions, see your doctor or licensed health professional. Okay, so we're back for yet another episode. This is this one's a good one. I know, I know. That I, I I'm quite excited about talking about things that are scary that are not so scary. <laughs> they are falsely scary. Falsely that scary. Appropriate? Yes. <laughs> it's misinformed to be scary. I know. No. So today we're talking about scary statistics and Ooh. really stopping the bullshit. Yeah. Um, in terms of all the stories that are out there, all the reports, all of the information that's being shared. And there's so much of it is just bullshit and it's it's time to stop it in its tracks. Yes. Yeah. So we're going by mostly one book, but I've also included another because it's it's just a really, really good book that I thought would be valuable for this episode. Uh, do you want to share what book we're reading? It is called Calling Bullshit, which is why there's going to be a little bit of bullshit in this episode yeah. um there's a brand new release from university of washington professors yeah and it is a great understanding of basic stuff that we need to know with statistics so i personally recommended this book yes and i was very happy and very excited to read it it's uh the first third of it was fantastic for your average consumer because it's really how to look at the charts and look at stories and just kind of critically evaluate like is it real is it worth spreading this information um, and then it does go a little bit heavy into some of the stats but a lot of it was fairly straightforward to follow so yes. it was uh, it was a good one the other one that we're going to be talking about as well a little bit you haven't read yet but uh, mm-hmm. I have read I have a feeling it's on your book list now definitely now yeah it's called a field guide to lies and it's by Daniel J. Levitin and he goes through again being able to interpret and critically evaluate stuff just in the the media data in the media and then he does go a little bit more into detail I find it was that one was a little bit more for your average consumer your average person calling bullshit I found a little bit heavier in the statistics but both of them were fantastic yeah yeah so if if you do want to start learning a little bit more so you're not duped then uh, either of these would be a good one to pick up Yeah. And if you don't want to invest the money, hit up your local library. They are fantastic resource. And do you know that I have actually recommended books to be purchased by my local library wherever I was living at the time? And a lot of times they just buy them. So you can actually request that your local public library buys certain books and they just might. Yep. I think that's a great idea. Uh, So definitely talk to them too, if uh, they don't have it. Uh, All right. So let's get started. So we talked, I mean, this is really following the lines of what we talked about in our first episode, which is false information. But with this, we're going a little bit deeper. So not just stopping to think like, hey, should I be spreading this? But all of the other questions we need to be asking ourselves with every story that feels like it's trying to prove a point. You know, we want to make sure to stop and think before we do anything. So the power of critical thinking is really what we're pushing here. So false information, gossip, lies, and all sorts of bullshit spread at a phenomenal rate. 
uh, in our society. The number that they reference in the book is that it spreads six times faster and can actually go 10 times further than the truth. Crazy, eh? That is nuts. People just love to spread gossip. (laughs) And and it's it's unwillingly a lot of time too. It's just they know how to capture your attention and push those buttons to get yeah. it spreadable. Well, they really, and we're going to get into this, but they really tap into the emotional side of things. And I think that shock value, mm-hmm. people love that shock value where, you know, you see a story and you're like, oh, no way. Yes, exactly. And then you, <laughs> you keep spreading it. Yep. Not true. And then it's hard for the truth to catch up. It just doesn't spread the same way because again, the facts and, and the truth just most of the time aren't as interesting you know it's not about the emotions in a lot of these situations yeah it's definitely not as sensational as somebody's creative science fiction writing can be so (laughs) sensational and catch people's attentions right that's really true Uh, there was one quote as I was reading it I was like marking up I felt so bad I was marking up the book like crazy writing little notes and folding down corners but there was one that stuck out An idiot can create more bullshit than you could ever hope to refute. (laughs) I cannot agree with that more. I mean, it's, yeah, science fiction versus science. Yeah, so, I mean, that's that's some of the reasons why we really have to learn how to stop it before it builds and snowballs, because it is hard to stop it once it's started. You know, it's it's once the cat's out of the bag, we don't want to be the one participating in spreading false information. Uh, so what else? The benefit of technology has definitely created a world more amazing, but more terrifying than ever before, because it's so easy to spread this information. Like we look even from 50 years ago, how easy it was to spread information. You know, people had to pick up the phone, stuff was spread by newspaper from the radio. That that was really it. But now with the advent of the internet and social media, especially, You know, you could have information spreading in the blink of an eye. People see the article and forward it and paste it. And, you know, it's just a couple of finger taps. And and before you know it, thousands, if not more people can have access to the same information, whether it's true or not. Right. It's causing a lot of chaos in communities and leading to a lot more violence worldwide. And there was a few examples in the book that talked about this, which, you know, that's that makes me sad, actually, to read that. There's, you know, watching the news now, it's it's really upsetting seeing how divisive everything is and, and how we're not able to communicate anymore. You know, it's, you believe in something, so I can't be your friend anymore. Um, and it's, so it has done our societies a very big disservice yeah. in a lot of ways. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, the spread of false information is one of the causes of this. We are responsible and we definitely make the choice whether to spread it or not. So let's get into talking about critical evaluation so we can decide whether we want to be the spreaders of that that type of bullshit. <laughs> and, and how to spot it. How to spot it, I think, is, is going to be key. I'm really excited about that part. Yeah. So I think the take home message is like a lot of people think, oh my God, it's, you know, it's really challenging. How do I know whether something's true or false it's really not that hard uh, it's not as hard as people think it is it, it just takes a little bit of thought and a few questions to get used to asking yourself before you go ahead uh, one thing big thing you can do is stop and think about the likelihood of a story being true I love this example 
is it likely that the earth is actually flat and is a giant cover-up for some huge organization's personal gain? <laughs> right. Like how yeah. many people would you possibly need to get on board? Like yeah. every pilot, every geographer. Yeah. Well, not only that, but people have known for centuries now that the Earth is round and planets are round and we all orbit around in space. Like, has the cover-up been going on since the 1600s? You know, it, it, stepping back big picture, is it likely that this is true? I mean, there is a small chance that it could be true, but is it likely? No. <laughs> Why would they do this? Some people just like to wreak havoc. Some people have political gain, financial gain, personal gain, just, you know, why? Just just stop and ask what, you know, what purpose does this have? Uh, how does it benefit them? And are they trying to get an emotional response to get a reaction to get you to talk about it? You know, when we look at more factual information, Typically, there's a lot less of an emotional response. I mean, sometimes with the new research that's coming out, you can be amazed and be like, oh, my God, that's so interesting. But they're not out to elicit that um, huge emotional response. Um, and so if it is doing that, that would definitely give me pause. Yeah, it's that sensation factor. If the sensation factor is there, you know, it may be true. But if you think about it, asking these questions. You yeah, know, is it likely it's true. How is it possible that it's true? How many? What is? What do people have to gain if it's true? I mean, you think yes. about those things as well. Then that kind of helps you gauge the the real or the reality if it could possibly be true, like in real life. Yeah, I think language is something we need to talk about too. Language is a huge component. Uh, when we get into the end of the podcast, we're going to be talking more about reading the actual articles and how to kind of critically evaluate on a scientific level, which is a little bit deeper than I think the average person wants to go, but we felt it important to include it. But language, when we're reading the translated or extrapolated article, like in the social media, what language are they using? Um, and they have a couple of examples in calling bullshit. Uh, John doesn't shoot up when he's working. Right. right. That was one that I saw. And I was like, yeah, language is, is really key. By wording it like that, it's making it seem like this poor John guy shoots up when he's not working, right. even though it could be this guy's not a drug addict at all. Right. But it's kind of just the implication that's there. Um, and it's not, again, you know, if you'd come back and say to the person, like, you're misleading, and he'd be like, no, or she would be no, what they're saying is factual but there's that underlying implication that's there. And, and that is used quite a bit in media now. Uh, the other one that was from uh, the field guide, uh, they talked about language as well. A lot of these topics overlapped quite a bit. More people have cell phones now than have toilets. This was from an article in Time magazine, believe it or not. But the actual study, when you go back and look at the actual report, the wording was actually more people have access to cell phones than toilets. There's a very different meaning between those two, but the way that it was translated into everyday articles was, yeah, it, it was just wrong. So right. that was unfortunate. And that was a good example too. Yeah, it's a good example of the reason why it's important to go back to find the source of the information when you're quoting. I found, I'll tell you a little story. I found that, 
when a lot of blog posts or people who are communicating online are always referencing each other, that, mm-hmm. that constant message is getting, not only is it getting reiterated and reiterated on multiple blogs, but it's making it sound like it's new information because yeah. it was on this blog for the first time. And when you go back, you're like, oh, but it was on this blog before and it was on that blog before. It's very recycled. So yeah. number one, if the blog isn't giving you the actual blog or whatever article, it could be anything that's not giving you the, the actual source of where the, that information, that statistic came from. Yeah. That's a red flag. And second of all, every time it's presented, it's presented as though it's new to a new audience. So yeah. it could have been it could have been true 15 years ago, but what yeah. does the new research on the topic say? Yeah. So yeah, it, pay attention to stuff like that. I love with this this language and and the use of how wording works in BS. They definitely <laughs> called out this one and called it weasel wording, where the wording is purposely not forthcoming. And this is definitely something to watch out for. Because journalists and other authors often leave out things on purpose or try to word things in a way to bend in the direction they want it to go. Uh, And so if you ever see that happening where you have this, the wording that just doesn't sound natural or it's implying something, you have to stop and think, you know, what's really going on here. And again, it might be true, but maybe they're making underlying implications. Maybe they're trying to hint at something, you know, and why are they doing that? Why aren't they being forthcoming? Why are they being weasels? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Very often what we see is the point of modern propaganda isn't only to misinform or to push an agenda. It's to exhaust your critical thinking and to annihilate truth. And this was quoted right from BS Uh, by a gentleman called Gary Kasparov on Twitter. So this was not my quote uh, or the author's quote. It was another guy. But, I mean, it's it's so appropriate, too. You know, we're bombarded now with information, and it's exhausting. Uh, And so, you know, we need to really work that muscle a little bit more and be able just to stop and think before we just mindlessly forward or share information. Yeah, I actually... I actually think this is probably the number one most unfortunate outcome is that it's not just that people are being divided into two sides, you know, us versus them, but it's that the general public stops trusting everybody. And I think that this erosion of trust in people who actually know what they're talking about Mm-hmm. But it's like just these implications like, oh, well, so-and-so said the opposite. Well, that's literally spreading gossip and rumors, but it's it's eroding trust in experts who may be saying something completely different. Yeah. And I think that's the biggest, that's the biggest risk we take is that in general, people are not going to know who to trust. And for everyone listening, this is exactly why we started this podcast. Yes. Yeah, no, I I obviously agree. So, 
Yeah. Have you seen the Netflix documentary called yes. The Social Dilemma? Yes. I knew the one you yeah. were talking about because I already saw it. Yes. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's really interesting in that documentary. They talk about how social media is fantastic at giving you the information you want to see yep. based on what your beliefs are. So you're cementing your beliefs without meaning to because of the paid advertising that they push. And so people get more and more down their own rabbit hole of what they feel is true. Um, and a lot of it is false information. And it, it makes it harder and harder to see other points of view because we feel that the majority believes what we believe. Right. And that's just because that's what we see in our feed. Because every time we like something, yes. or stop to read something or click to share something, the algorithm for advertising and just for organic reach yeah. is triggered to say, ooh, this person engages with stuff like that. I'm going to show them more of that. And then when you yeah. have a conversation with somebody who's in, quote unquote, a different echo chamber. So yeah. you're hearing, you know, all kinds of information on this topic and this angle, and they're hearing all kinds of, you actually don't even, you can't even understand, like, how are you even thinking that? How did you even hear that? Where did that come yeah. from? And that's, that's exactly part of the unfortunate outcome and circumstances of what's happening in social media now, which is exactly why we're doing this podcast, especially um, on media literacy and, and yeah. understanding statistics. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, yeah, I thought it was a really good um, documentary to the point where actually my husband and I made all of our kids. Watch so did we. <laughs> and we, and it took way too long because I kept stopping it and I'd be like, do you understand what's going on here? Like, this is what's happening. Um, and I know, like, it was it was a little bit quite upsetting, actually, when they were talking about the self harming and suicide statistics. And I could see my kids faces drop when they saw that, that how much it's going up. And we just kept saying, like, this is why we have major concerns with social media at such a young age, you don't understand what you're seeing in the, the major outcomes and implications of what could be happening. And I think it, it's really sad, because there are a lot of adults as well that don't understand that we're being manipulated and it's all for advertising dollars. You know, we have to stop like, I mean, social media now is just a part of our lives, right? Like it's the rare person now that doesn't get on any social media and it's not something that we have to completely eliminate, but you know, we have to have that awareness that if we are going to use it, they have a very different uh, driving force than we do and so you know you, you do have to to be careful critically evaluate think about you know what you're sharing you know all the information you put out there it's all becoming data that's going to be used to hit you harder anyways total tangent there <laughs> <laughs> at the end of this beginning of the chapter uh, or beginning of this topic um, they talked about what we can do to help solve this problem of all this false information and, and just the fact that we need to critically evaluate. And really this totally jives with our values and belief systems. The most powerful approach is education. So we're not saying believe everything we are telling you necessarily, you know, but you need to think for yourself. You need to do your research. You need to think outside your own comfort zone uh, and learn as much as you can uh, no matter what age and what your status is, there's always like, there's just so much information out there if you want to learn more about any topic or how to just become more informed in general. If we go back again, this is quoting from uh, Calling Bullshit. Uh, if we do good, uh, do a good job of educating people in media literacy and critical thinking, 
The problem of misinformation and disinformation can be solved from the bottom up. And, and this is, you know, we're just carrying this message forward with this podcast. Uh, go out and learn, challenge whatever information is being shared out there. Just don't blindly follow anything. Right. They talk about specific ways to stop the spread of misinformation. Number one, using tech companies to catch false stories. This one's challenging, though, because how do you decipher? There's no algorithm. How do you decipher what's real and what's not, what's true and what's false? You know, so that one will be hard, not to mention the fact that there's no motivation or reason for tech companies to do this unless it's mandated by the government. And so that really falls on number two, which is government regulation. We really need to start penalizing some of these massive information platforms and and hold them more responsible for for what's being shared and published. Yeah, I think that I know that a lot of the social media companies, as well as uh, search engines, are trying to start. I mean, I don't know how much of an effort is going into it, so I don't want to overgive credit. But I know that these initiatives have started doing fact checking, um, muting people who are consistently spreading demonstrably false information. Yeah, who and, are you thinking about right now? <laughs> yeah, I, you know what? I have a list, unfortunately. Um, but the thing is, it's happening. It's, it's not, I don't think that that's going to be a long-term solution per se. I think mm. that you're always going to catch things after they've spread six times farther and 10, or yeah. six times faster and 10 times farther, right? So it's, it's happening and some companies are doing a better, like tech companies are doing a better job than others. It's just, I guess part of this thing too, is it all comes down to human nature. It comes yeah. down to our, our psychology. It comes down to our emotions and it comes down to when people know which buttons to push, what key phrases to say and what images and headlines to write, mm-hmm. that just naturally provokes something that's that's in innate in all of us. Yeah. And I think that this just understanding the human nature part of it and trying to learn about this and, and you know, critically evaluate this is gonna be a big a big factor. Yeah, what I've started finding is, like, I'm definitely becoming more skeptical about what I'm seeing on social media. But to be honest, there is a lot of times when I'm hesitant to comment because people are getting a lot more touchy about things like that, too. So, you know, as a society, we have to become a little bit more accepting of other people's opinions. And and when other people point out specific points or, or issues with what they're sharing. And uh, there was one that I saw recently was a video and somebody made a comment like, oh, this is so amazing. And as I'm watching it, I could clearly see massive editing going on in the video, like glitches where they're like jumping forward through sentences. And I was it just made me stop and think, what are they leaving out? Like they're obviously heavily editing and they're not even hiding it, you know, like. I, yeah, I just definitely, my alarm bells started ringing in my head and I was like, this is not <laughs> what we should be sharing. It might be interesting, but you know, something's going on because clearly there's a lot of stuff that they're clipping out. Right. So yeah, just that's one of the, the things to watch for, for sure. So this is, we just kind of covered why and and what we need to start watching for a little bit. 
um, in social media and other media platforms in general. But the next section, I, I wanted to go over some of the basic statistics that every average person should know. And really, this comes down to, you know, more than you think you do. Yes. You know, and I have some good examples here. And hopefully people will realize that they're smarter than they think. And so it's not super complicated to be able to look at graphs and plots and data and think, oh, my God, there's no way I'm going to be able to figure that out. It's a lot easier to figure out than you think it is. Statistics, and this is where we got the title from, people are scared of math and statistics. You know, it's, and I'll be honest, like, we are not statisticians. Nope. I took stats in college and university. I, I'll be honest, I did not enjoy it. It, <laughs> it, I had to go, actually, I don't know if you had the same prof I did. He was awesome. I was really, really struggling with stats. And I went and I, with my mom's encouragement, went and talked to him personally. Was it third year? It was 201. It was the second year one. Yeah, I can't remember the guy's name, which is unfortunate. Hubert. I think I had Dr. Hubert. Yeah, that might be. Was he a little bit older? Uh, Yeah, I had him, I think, in third year and in grad school. Yeah. If I'm not mistaken. He wrote his own textbook? Yes. Oh, yeah. maybe it was him. Maybe it was. But yeah, so I was really struggling. I went and talked to him. My mom's like, just you're a person. Just go talk to him. They want to help you. And they do. And I still tell my kids this story. I'm like, if you are struggling, teachers want you to succeed go talk to them they are a fantastic resource go talk to them and so I went and talked to him he gave, he gave me all this extra homework to do and he would sit with me for a couple of hours a week and go over it with me to make sure I understood and Amazing. I told him by two grades from the middle of semester to the end of the semester because I was able to help him so like you don't have to do that. We are not statisticians. We are not here to teach you how to do statistics. We are right. not going to make anybody listening to this podcast listen to equations. <laughs> this, is, this is not our purpose, thankfully, because I don't think I would enjoy that. Really, what we want to do is just go over some of the terminology so that you're not in the dark in terms of what it means. Uh, and you know what? I can almost put money on the fact that you will know most of these terms anyway because they're used all the time. Stats is way more prevalent in our society than we realize. Yes. So uh, where was I? What are stats? So I went and looked up the definition of what statistics is, because I know what it is, but I, I just, people are way better at wording than I am. So I pulled up the actual definition. It is a branch of mathematics dealing with the collection analysis, interpretation, and presentation of masses of numerical data. So really, it's it's just all of the stuff involved in data. Uh, and it, the other way to define it is a collection of quantitative data. And this is where the difference comes in. And I think this is where things get foggy. The word here is quantitative, which means numerical. So when we start looking at like mostly and sometimes and often, uh, or when we talk about feelings or are people apt to do things like all of these vague words that are more qualitative, that's not statistics. And so, you know, we, we should be, there is a whole branch of, of research looking at qualitative data, but the way that they analyze the data is very different. So, and we, we have to be able to, to kind of separate the two. Let's go over some terms that everybody knows they know but maybe doesn't even realize they're actually statistical terms 
Number one, average. Yep, average. Mean. Yeah. Yeah. Same thing. Whenever we're looking at, uh, okay, so what it is is when we add up all the totals and then we divide by the number of data points, we get the average. This is not anything new for anybody. The best way uh, that we use this is, I would say, with the weather. When we're looking at, you know, like it's January and us Canadians are looking at our window at all the horrible gray snow <laughs> and we're thinking, get me out of here. You know, we pull up the weather report for like Bermuda or Cuba or Mexico, wherever we feel like going down in the Caribbean. And we look at the average temperature uh, at that time of year in that location. And then we start figuring out another math word, which is the probability, the chances or odds of a specific event occurring. And so we start figuring out what are the chances that the weather's going to be like that right. when I'm there. And so just by doing that, just by dreaming about where we want to get away to and get some vitamin D and some beach time and, you know, have a few pina coladas or margaritas, uh, we're doing statistics. Right. So, and in that situation, it's not scary. We're able to process it. We're able to, you know, figure it out when we look at like, say, going down to Mexico in July the weather forecast is in the averages and the probabilities are very different. So we start kind of evaluating, do I want to spend that much money when the probability of rainy weather is much higher? What are my better chances? Yeah. So that's, that's definitely something that makes it a lot easier to approach. So those are the two more common stats terms that we find day to day. So average and probability we see all the time. Yes. When, here's where it starts getting a little bit more complicated, but it's not hard. Again, this is just a little bit more thought involved. Social media and media now is fantastic at creating these visual images of data analysis so that it's a lot easier to grasp. This is fantastic because it's making information more accessible. But the problem is, is it's very easy to change how we see that information and skew numbers to prove whatever point that individual wants to make. So we need to keep in mind that we may have to do some very simple math, but we all are walking around with calculators in our pocket, so it's not hard. Right. So I remember in, I think it was elementary school, and somebody was like, why can't we ever use a calculator? And the teacher, <laughs> I vividly remember this, the teacher said, you know, we're not going to be walking around with calculators when we're adults. <laughs> Uh oh! I know they were so wrong we are so it makes math so much easier so when we're looking at some of these charts there are some warning signs that you can look for to know whether or not the information has been tallied correctly one of them is pie charts these are fun to look at because they look like a pie you can use lots of bright colors which everybody likes you can typically see the ratios like how big the pie slices are compared to each other a pie chart should always add up to a hundred always 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 yes because the whole thing together is a hundred percent right and so it's it's a little bit harder it takes a little bit more adding to add them all up if, if you see many but now again like with technology if you're watching the news and you see something pop up pause it and just do a little bit of mental math like are we hitting a hundred if we're not 
then like just flat out ignore the chart. They have no idea what they're doing because they can't do simple math that you can do. Right. Yeah. But if we're scrolling, stop, again, do a little bit of simple math, add it up. If it doesn't add up to 100, they're full of bullshit and just ignore them. The X and Y axis. Uh, so when we're looking at other charts, we can see bar charts, line graphs. There's lots of different ways to visualize this information. It's a little bit easier to manipulate the data in this case, because people don't always know what to look for. But thank goodness, we have awesome books like what we're talking about today, and we have us to help translate it for you and bring it to all sorts of people. So there are things that you should definitely watch out for, so that even these types of graphs and data presentation don't fool you. So whenever you're looking at a chart, you have an X and a Y axis. The Y, or sorry, X axis is horizontal across the bottom. So think horizon, flat, yes. side to side. You have the y-axis, which is up and down. And typically, you have the um, constant, so the thing that doesn't change across the bottom, and then the variable across the y. Right, so, so the bars the are all standing upright, like building yeah. on a graph. Yep, yeah, typically. Uh, although it can be changed, there's that's not a hard, fast rule. But the the numbers can be divvied up in whatever way you want, like there's lots of different ways to group data or to plot data. And so we need to look at how things are laid out on that graph. And if there's anything weird going on, like the numbers aren't consistent um, is a really big one. And so, you know, if you're looking at across any of the axes and you don't have, say, for example, you're jumping up by fives and then suddenly halfway through you start jumping up by tens or more or the opposite. You start jumping up by ones or twos. That's kind of illegal in statistics. Yeah, that is a total red flag. Yeah. And so, again, if we're looking at any type of media outlet that's presenting this data, pause it. And this becomes easier the more you do it. This is a skill to develop. This is something to learn to observe quickly. Take a look at the axis. Is it consistent from start to finish? If it's not, they're trying to manipulate you in some way because they're trying to make the data look a certain way to prove their point. And they shouldn't do that because it's you need consistency so that you can actually compare apples to apples and oranges to oranges. Um, and so we can see that either on the X or the Y. Most of the time, the axis, either one should start at zero. Uh, however, I mean, when we're looking at, say, uh, the year that something happened, so like birth rates, death rates, all of those factors, uh, CO2 in the air by year, obviously the axis will not start at zero because we're not, we can't go back that far. We can technically, but most of the time we don't. And then in terms of CO2 levels or whatever that value is, whatever that unit is, you know, should be starting at zero somewhere. They can move it if needed, but they should be pretty clear about that in whatever way they need to be. Um, and so watching the axis is a good indicator as, as to if the, the data is being manipulated. So those are some easy things to look for. And again, that takes like no math skills. You know, you need to be able to count. My 10-year-old can count very easily. So we call it skip, skip counting. You know, that's all it takes. 
So just looking for anything wonky. Sometimes you'll see that like little lightning bolt halfway through, meaning they've like clipped out a bunch of information. If they've added that, then they're, they are being more forthcoming about the fact that they're doing that. So, you know, just, just start to ask, like, why, why are they doing that? And then go back and see if you can find the original data. What are they leaving out? The other point that we talked about in the book, not we talked about, they talked about in the book, be very skeptical of double plotted graphs. This is where you have two lines on the same graph. One correlates to one x-axis and the other one correlates to another, sorry, y-axis. And so we have two scales going on. It's really, really easy in this situation to manipulate data to make it correlate, to make it look the same, to make it look like there's a pattern there when there's in fact not. And so anytime I see this, I kind of stop and think, okay, something is going on here. You know, there is a chance that it's factual, but it's so easy for them to change. And they, they there's a whole chapter in the book calling bullshit that talks about, you know, you can take any really information and find some type of other data that correlates with it. Right you know, all these random patterns uh, and manipulating data so that it, it does match up. Do I have an example? I don't think I do. I can't think of one right now, but I remember seeing it in the book. Uh, there's a really cool, it's called spurious correlations. Yes, yes, that's the yes, term I was looking for. We should link to that in the, in the show notes where it's completely completely random things that happened to correlate with each other on a graph that have absolutely nothing in any realm of science fiction fantasy that could possibly be like it's hilarious yeah uh, spurious correlations yeah I wanted to say something back to your double your double y-axis graphs because yeah um, when when I'm picturing the one y-axis and uh, sorry the one x-axis at the bottom and the two Wise one on each side, and they both have different scales. They're both measuring different things. I've seen yep. this done well when one y-axis has the numbers in one color, and the line graph is also in that color. Mm -hmm. And the second y-axis on the other side is a different color with the related line on that graph, that mm -hmm. same color. So that's one way you can take a graph that may be a little more complicated to understand and make it easier for people to see that the green yeah. numbers and the green line are together and the black numbers and the black line are together. Yeah, but the same rule still applies. Like watch what's going on on the axis. You know, if they're starting at some arbitrary number and then moving up from there, maybe they've zoomed in too much. We see that quite often or maybe they haven't zoomed in enough to be able to see the pattern. Um, or to emphasize a pattern that maybe is not relevant because they've, they've zoomed in too much. And so we're starting to see like variations when there really is not, you know, if you're looking at like point percentages compared to like 10 point percentages, you know, point one variation will be very different than like 10% variation. So we need to pay attention to that. Like, are they trying to, again, manipulate data to make it look like there's a pattern there when there's not? I've seen this done in COVID data where people, they do the, the, um, the points for every single day, but yeah. what's really important when you're looking at cases or, or whatever for 
um, COVID-19 is the seven day trend. Yeah. So if you zoom right up to the last, you know, three or four or five days worth of data, you're actually missing the big picture, which is what is the seven day average doing and not just one day where they may or may not have done more tests or got more test results or whatever. Yeah. Well, and often we're not going to see trends or patterns until we really zoom out quite a bit more and start seeing big picture like COVID numbers over the past month because we have that two-week lag with it. Like it can take up to two weeks before people start showing symptoms or being affected by it. The other one that I thought was really interesting too along the y-axis, often we bin things. And so you say we're looking at numbers by age group or um, we're looking at like how many COVID cases there are, you know, every day. And then we bin it like, so if the number is between 50 and 100, you know, we'll kind of bin that together and and so on and so on. If those bins are not consistent in size, then that's a huge warning sign. Um, And there was actually, I was, I think it was on Twitter, I saw somebody post about the numbers, it was a US stat, and they were showing then the the graphs that had been posted on the media two weeks apart and they looked like the same but when you zoomed in the bins were changing they were they were manipulating the data the bin sizes and the bin numbers so that the color coding stayed the same but the qualifications for each category was changing so it looked like the situation wasn't getting worse this was at the beginning i think this was in the spring and I just thought, oh, like that, that's that's scary because the average person looking wouldn't look that closely. So it was somebody, another science person that was like, no, I took pictures and look at this. They're manipulating the data. Right. So we do have to be careful and be a little bit more vigilant because there's a lot of different people with different agendas. And so we have to be educated and informed so that we're not duped. Exactly. Where were we? We got sidetracked there a little bit. So it's not the stats that are scary. It's the manipulation of the stats that are actually scary. Yeah. And so I think what's really important to remember, we've Mm -hmm. talked about all sorts of ways that we can watch this information, but we have not Mm -hmm. talked about math officially in any capacity yet. (laughs) Right? So you don't have to know math in order to make sure that you're not fooled by the, the numbers and, and the articles and the graphs that are put out. You know, you just have to pay attention to detail. Yep. Really. The other thing, and this gets misinterpreted a lot, correlation does not equal causation. And there is so many people out there that don't understand that connection, especially in the media. And so they, they look at the article, wherever it was published, the study that was done, and they see a relationship any kind of relationship between A and B, and they think, oh, A causes B. And that's not the case at all. There might be a relationship, but that that does not mean that A causes B. It could mean that, like, for example, a correlation between waist size and cardiovascular disease, as your, there is a relationship between as your waist size increases, your risk of cardiovascular disease increases. But that does not mean A causes B because there's plenty of people out there with larger waist size that don't have cardiovascular disease that we're aware of. For example, just because there's a pattern does not mean that, again, there's a direct relationship. Right. The best example that made me laugh so hard was the one when I was first 
out of CSNN. Uh, I was doing a little bit of research into dairy because in, they push that dairy is not uh, a healthy food in the program, which is fine. I, I think there's really mixed beliefs in that. And it, it's really up to the individual. You have to kind of figure out what works for you. But there was one blog that I found and they were talking about, you know, you shouldn't consume dairy for whatever reason. And he goes, here, I'll give you an example. Uh, last year, I went to Coney Island and I saw a lot of people eating ice cream, but I didn't see a lot of people going to the bathroom. Therefore, dairy causes constipation. Oh, my gosh. Right. <laughs> right. It's like just because you're you're like, how do you even compare those yeah. two? Are you yeah. watching people for hours and hours and days? Well, and that's the thing. I'm like, most people only go to go number two, like once or twice a day. So right. the chances of you catching them doing that when yeah. you're just kind of hanging out with them for a little bit is quite slim. Right. And B, like, it just, it just kind of blew my mind that they would even make that. And the sad part is, is a lot of people would fall for that because they don't right. understand that he's talking nonsense. Yeah, it's total nonsense. Yeah, total nonsense. <laughs> so... <laughs> Yeah, just because you see one thing doesn't necessarily mean that there's a pattern. Right. And doesn't mean that there's a correlation. Right, spurious correlations. Yeah, exactly. Definitely be skeptical of the data they don't share with you. And so the a good example I have of this one, this is from Field Guide to Lies. They talk about Colgate toothpaste and how four out of five dentists recommend Colgate toothpaste. You know, you look on the surface and you're like, that's fantastic. I'm going to buy Colgate toothpaste. But what they don't tell you is that when they get to pick the toothpaste that they like, they're, they're not restricted to just one. They can pick as many, like they're given a list and they get to pick as many as they like as brands that they would recommend. Um, and so, yeah, maybe four to five do, but maybe four to five also recommend all of these other toothpastes. Uh, maybe five out of five recommend other toothpastes. We, we just don't know. We're not given all the information. Right. So the difference there is that four to five dentists may not be recommending that toothpaste over the competitors. Yes. They just happen to be recommending that, but you know, maybe they'll recommend others as well. Exactly. And what, but when we look at like the regulation around toothpaste, there's only a certain amount of fluoride they can add. There's only a certain amount of like scrubbing components or chemicals they can add. Like they're, they're very limited and they're very regulated in what they can add because it, is put in your mouth it is there is a possibility for consumption yeah it's a health product yeah and so you know if you're following regulations then a dentist is most likely going to recommend it and so it just it's not quite as relevant as they they are making it out to be interesting yeah if illustrations are shared does it make sense uh ratios and percentages they have to add up. They have to make sense. If they are extreme, you have to kind of question. Sometimes, and there were some good examples in here as well, where, and we'll share these in our social media, where they're using illustrations that are, whether it's done consciously or not, the data makes it very hard to interpret. And there was one, I'm just looking for right now, if you're hearing pages going, and it was a fork. Oh, Yes. Yeah, yes. I remember what page that was on. I know it was right around here, but it was a fork and it was here it is. Ha, huh, it is page for those of you who want to pick up the book 143 in calling um, bullshit. Restaurant spending um in quarter 2 and so fast food and sit down. 
But the way that they have it is they have the tines coming out as a percentage, but then they have them on an angle. And so it's, it's a really artsy visual. And so you're kind of distracted by the fact that it's a fork. But then because it's on an angle and then the tines are different lengths, it just makes it very hard to fully understand what the, the point they're really driving home. And we've seen this in other examples, too, where the length does not accurately correspond to the percentage or to the ratio. Right. And so they can manipulate that quite easily without anybody being aware. And so if something is a little bit too visual or too visually appealing, it's not doing us any favors because we're getting distracted by the picture and not paying attention to the data. Right. So that's something to just know about when you're looking through those things. In general, making sure that as much information is divulged as possible, make sure everything adds up. You know, if your spidey senses start going off, it's definitely a good indication that there's something wonky going on. Trust your instinct. Don't just get caught up in like, oh my God, can you believe that? <laughs> and that's, that's key to getting things spreading online is the surprise factor, right? Yeah. Yeah. And they, they really bank on that in terms of the, the pathogenicity of it. Right. Word. Um, so when we see a story, there's some questions you can ask yourself. Who's publishing the information? Uh, and not just the reiterated information, but go back and figure out, like, where did it originate from? What country is the story originating from? There are definitely more regulations in Canada and the U.S. And I believe the U.K. as well would have higher regulations about what can be published. There are, unfortunately, some areas of the world where things are not regulated at all. False information can come out with really out any implications. And so, you know... If it is coming out from areas of the world like that, then maybe wonder a little bit more uh, about what they're sharing and why. Who's the author? If it's somebody you've never heard of, you know, just they should have a little bit of a reputation. They should be associated with some organization. Where did they get their data from and are they linking to the original source? anybody worth their salt will link to the original source. I'm a huge, huge proponent of linking to the original sources of yeah. scientific studies when you are quoting them. Um, there's, there's even a, um, for health writers online and science communicators and science journalists, there's a push now to be linking mm -hmm. to the study that you're profiling in your piece because it just adds your credibility People can look it up. They can go and get more information. And it's just such a huge thing. And now people are becoming very reasonably, and, and I'm glad, more skeptical online. So yeah. when more people are skeptical, it really behooves you to, I think I got that word from the statistics prof, to be honest. It behooves you to um, have credible information, have your references listed. Yeah, for sure. I totally agree. Uh, does the source make sense? So, for example, we're going to see this a lot with political polls or just polls of people's opinions and things like that. You know, they should be stating where the poll was taken place, how many people were polled, how they contacted these people, because that can be a bias, which we're going to talk about shortly. The demographic, age group, you know, 
all of this information is really, really important if we want to verify that it's valid. And they, again, all of this information should be open. And if not, you should be able to contact whoever did the poll to find out how it was. Like it's, this is one of the very important things in the scientific method is that the process has to be shared in explicit detail so that anybody who wants to go back and replicate it can. Exactly. And, and yeah. that's how you advance your knowledge is, you know, more than one person does something the same or very similar and gets the same or similar answer or not. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And a lot of things, especially new bits of information, new answers about how things work and things like that. If, it, if it's an outlier, if it doesn't kind of follow the trend, people are going to go and start looking at it deeper because it kind of pushes against the general consensus. And they need to, it needs to be verified. So that's just how it works, uh, which is good. You know, we want tons of smart people out there just double checking. All yep. the information. Measure twice, cut once. Right, in right. Scientific terms. <laughs> um, are they sharing all the pertinent information? If it seems like maybe there's information that was left out, that just you know, like the dots don't connect. You know, that's a big red flag as well. Uh, and does it follow? Again, we just talked about this. Does it follow the general opinion on a topic, uh, or is it an outlier? And outliers. I mean, outliers can be valid like they can definitely push the bar and and change our way of thinking a lot of things are disrupted in terms of how we think things work and how they work together and fit together you know the more we learn the more we understand a lot of the time it's not what we thought it was and that's okay but when it when the information first comes out it does cause a lot of waves and people do have to go double check it and it, it isn't until you know, it's been verified by numerous sources that be, it becomes the, the general thinking. Um, and so if it's a new outlier, you know, did something go wrong in their study or in their experiment? You know, like, why is it defying what we already believe? And yes, it might be true. But, you know, more often, there's an error somewhere. And so we do have to be skeptical of that new information. Right. Yeah. So those are just some basic things that we can start paying attention to at the beginning. Again, no math involved. <laughs> so it's not scary. Uh, just a little bit of, you know, question asking and a little bit of critical thinking. And hopefully we can really start minimizing the spread of some of this false information. Right. Yeah. Um, so now for our last section. Uh, going back to the source, uh, checking out the original article. Everything should come from an original source. It shouldn't just be linked. I mean, I can go and make up all sorts of crazy things and just make statements. But unless I have something to back me up, you know, it's it's not going to be believable. So if they're not sharing where it came from originally, stop and think, like, where are they getting their information from? Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, it can be a book, although... What I've learned about resource books, as much as I love them, we do need to be a little bit skeptical of those as well, because in the the publication process, it's up to the author to vet their own information. But there is an inherent bias within that process, because the person obviously wants to make a point, 
and they have book sales and their livelihood on the line. And so they might not be as forthcoming or might not do as much due diligence as they should. So check the source. Where is it coming from? What's their history? You know, just, just dig deeper. When possible, go back to the original source of information, whatever type of published data it is. If it's an article, it should be peer reviewed. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yeah. How many people, especially with COVID, not people with COVID, but in this era of COVID, yeah. have presented their opinions via social media, via documentary, yeah. via press release, and not having things properly reviewed when they're talking about something that has a direct scientific possibility that you can do a proper test and direct health and harm to people in this pandemic. I mean, science is not done by jury. It is done by peer review and then it goes out and other experts. As I mentioned in the misinformation one, I've seen scientists online doing peer reviews on Twitter. Mm -hmm. Things were just not done properly the first time around. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of the time, like it, before peer review, it's more likely to get retracted because it hasn't been vetted. Um, but even after it's been peer reviewed, things can still be retracted because there are people out there that should be checking your data all the time. Like this is just part of the scientific process. Do you want to go over quickly what exactly peer review is? What does it mean? Sure. So when you have a, when you're doing a study, you, I mean, getting a study started is a whole project on its own because you need to write proposals, you need to get grants, you need to get funding, you need to get people, you need to have your study approved by the ethics review board, especially if you're dealing with people, and approved Mm. by your university. Like, it's very difficult to get a study um, approved, and that's why they have to be high quality. Everybody from all of those areas are looking at the quality of what you plan on doing. Then you write up your study, Mm-hmm. And you you have this scientific paper drafted, you have all the statistics done, the discussion, all of these elements approved through, you know, your advisor and any other authors who are on the on the paper and contributed. And then it has to go to a scientific journal. Mm-hmm. So you want the scientific world to know what you've done. So then you submit it. You have mm-hmm. to format it because every journal, unfortunately, has a different formatting. So you format it to a journal you submit it. And then they, what they do is they say, you know, this looks okay or not. And then they submit it to three other experts in that specific field. Yes. To review and comment on what you've done. Mm -hmm. And there's a big joke in the scientific community about reviewer two, like reviewer two is always that reviewer who has all of these comments on all of the studies, right? But, but these are, these are, these are peers and um, you get your comments back from reviewer two or, and all three of them. And then you may even have to do some editing, do, do some additional, you know, work, addenda, et cetera, on it before it's actually approved for, for proper publication in a proper journal. And that's when it goes to get indexed. Yeah. in PubMed. And I'll tell you that with PubMed, they do not index every article from every journal. There yeah. are many journals that have very high standards that will get indexed. All of their stuff, you'll find it on PubMed. There are also predatory journals 
yeah. who pop up and they agree that they'll publish anything for a small fee. And yeah, and there's it. Yeah. So it's, it's a process and doing good science, quality science is a team effort. Mm-hmm. And it's very important to get it all done in order to get it published. Yeah. Um, one way you can double check, like every article, when you do look at the original article, will state whether it's peer reviewed or not. If it doesn't say right on the article, you can go back to the journal and they should have like an about us tab so that you can go back and it should say like somewhere all articles are peer reviewed. If it doesn't say that, I wouldn't even bother reading the article personally. Yeah. And if it's not indexed in PubMed, it's like one of the lower quality places that are just published for a fee. One way to know too that the peer review is done properly is it will typically have like a submitted by date yes and then an actual approved for publication yes. date and, and to pay it, yeah and typically it is because you know there's enough corrections that they have to go and some people even have to go back into the lab and redo some stuff um, and that takes time some people just have to go back and re-edit or do a little bit of research um, to do their d- checking on the published data that's already out there maybe they're slightly inaccurate about something like there's lots of different ways that the editing needs to be corrected but you will typically see a lag in when it was submitted to when it was actually published and if it's like published on the 12th or accepted on the 12th and then published like you know a week later to me that's a little bit of a warning bell like maybe they're not really doing the proper peer review process Mm -hmm. that it should be so something to keep in mind but everything should be peer reviewed but even double check on the peer review it should be published by a reputable journal it's really become quite a money-making machine now these journals you know like you go try and find an article and if you're not a part of some organization it can be anywhere from like 20 to 40 50 bucks per article right you know it's it's really expensive and then academic organizations that pay for subscriptions they're paying like tens of thousands of dollars for annual for subscriptions are for each journal yeah and so that for those that are a student at some of these bigger universities or colleges you know like that's part of where your tuition is going to is paying just for access to and this, as which, the, sorry go ahead yeah no no no. I was just going to say like it's I have such mixed feelings about that because there should be a high standard that we have to go through and that does cost money but I feel like there's so many journals and publication groups now that are just taking advantage of it because our our, just our world has become so monetary yes I have two thoughts on that one of them is that as an alumnus you can very likely go back to the university you graduated from and have access to the journals that they have you may Mm -hmm. not be able to take things out as though you were a student but you will be able to see whatever it is that they have in their library. And um, the second thing we were talking about publication, journals, money. Oh, yes. <laughs> Consumerism. Yes. The second, <laughs> totally. The second thing is about access. I think that access is becoming a, an issue because of the, the internet in general and people yeah. using um, the internet to, to produce articles in, in, I mean, we know health, but I'm sure it happens in more than one area. But when you're a consumer and you want to know about health, you go and you, you, you look things up mm-hmm. and you find 
all of these free free information from people mm-hmm. who have a commercial interest in having you because they want to sell you their stuff, their supplements or products or programs, whatever it is. And that information is free. Now, yeah. when, when you have a bunch of free information available to you, and then there's information that is written, very difficult in a difficult, you know, not yeah. in a way that's behind a paywall. Well, it doesn't feel open. It doesn't feel like you have access to that kind of information. So what you have access to has a lot to do with, I'm, I would imagine, the kinds of decisions that you make for your health and your family's health. Well, and that's part of the other reason why we wanted to get this podcast going is, you know, like this information should be available to everybody. Right. And so hopefully by listening, by sharing, people are becoming a little bit more educated in whatever steps they want to take that's best for them to improve their health. You know, it it should be more accessible. We need to I mean, it's it's double edged sword, though, because there's there are a lot more people out there that feel so strongly about this. They have created open access databases. But that also opens the door to a lot of misinformation, even within published data. So, you know, there are a lot of organizations, publishing companies out there that, again, they're doing it for the money and they, they don't have quite the same quality standards in the material they're accepting, you know. So, so we do even have to be skeptical within critically evaluating articles as well. There is so. a uh, Chrome plugin I use to find articles that have been legally uploaded with no copyright issues on the oh. internet that you can't find on PubMed. It's called Unpaywall. And yes, I've heard of that one. Yes, it's a free Chrome plugin. And it basically, if you're in PubMed and, and you're, you see an article and it says that it's not available, it will flag it as a little green circle in, in the corner. And then you can actually find a legally uploaded copy on the internet. Sometimes it's you know, uh, published by the authors or, or mm-hmm. other places, but it's actually, um, I've been able to find a number of articles for free that upon first glance, if I didn't look further, I would have thought, ah, I can't read it. Unless I yeah, I'll definitely <laughs> find that uh, link and add it in the show yes. notes. So, so people, actually, maybe I'll do a small section of open access resources. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, so that people can um, hopefully find a little bit more uh, access to papers if they so desire. Right. Okay. So looking through some more, uh, are they clear on the intent of the study and why this is important? And so this is, you know, we're starting to read a little bit into the paper. Every paper is broken down into sections, especially if it's a primary article. So there's review articles where they kind of take all of the information to date and they, they write like a little bit of a uh, story on kind of what the people know so far. Those can be good if you are new to a topic because it gives you all the background information. It gives you a chance to get familiar with the language, what terminology is used. You know, those things matter when you're doing searches because if you're not using the right word, your article that you want, the information you want won't come up. Um, So reviews are a good place to start. But when we're talking about primary articles, primary articles are the articles that are talking about the specific experiment or study that was done to find out new information. And so that will have an abstract introduction, materials and methods, results, discussion, and conclusion, and then resources as well. So when we're looking through the beginning, which is the abstract and then the introduction, you know, they should be very clear about like, what's the information to date? Where is the information lacking? um, And how are we aiming to fill in some of these holes that we see that there are within this, this area or this field? 
You know what I'm loving about some of the recent changes in some of the studies you can find online Mm -hmm. is some of them have a little section at the very top with like three or five bullets that give you kind of a snapshot and they're written in real normal English. So when you go and you find the study, it actually has kind of a, you know, overall summary in um, a couple of bullets. And I think that that is really helpful. And I very much encourage all journals to start implementing this um, for the studies. Yeah, I haven't seen that. I'm going to have to to watch out for that, though. But that what a great idea. Yes, it's new. Yeah, no, that's that's good, though. I like that they're making it more easily accessible to everybody. Um, so when we look at the abstract and, and introduction, is it well written and easy to follow? This will be an indication of how easy it's going to be for anybody to follow the rest of the article. If you're having trouble reading it, if I mean, there's often language barriers and it doesn't necessarily detract from the quality of the data. But if you're going to have a hard time following the ball <laughs> as it's going through, you know, it's you're not going to be able to get the information you need from it. So it should be well written, easy to follow Methods should be described in detail, uh, including the analysis. And this is extremely important because, again, like we just talked about, the experiment, the study, whatever it was that was done as data collection should be reproducible in other labs, no matter where you are. So they I mean, they'll even go as far as like what machine did you use? What lot number did you use if you were using tools? So say you're looking at like cholesterol watching cholesterol levels and certain like we talked about cholesterol levels in uh, vegetarians or vegans versus omnivores before in another episode you know like what lot number did they use on the testing kits to make sure that they were getting the right data because you know say that something was found out later that that lot number from that company something was faulty with it like we need to know that information because that would affect the results. Yeah, this so, is not the place to be gray and no, you have to be specific. Yeah, and even uh, there was one article when I was teaching at the university I teach at, I teach massage therapy students how to, to critically evaluate articles there. And there was one article that they were talking about and it was like a secret massage technique and how awesome it was. But they couldn't share it because again, they were looking at basically monetizing it like they were trying to create a program and so they were publishing to try and get backing but then as we're going through and reading it as a class you know I kept saying to them like what's fishy here they're like they're not telling us what to do I'm like exactly so obviously there's a bias there's a monetary gain here to be had you know that should be setting off huge alarm bells this this article is not as good as they're making it out to be yeah so you know it's if they're not sharing why aren't they sharing what's going on you know just definitely that's a big alarm bell in any scientific process uh results should be shared in full and it should make sense sometimes i feel researchers try to confound things try and make it look confusing to make themselves look smarter to manipulate the data you know if you can't interpret the data yourself you don't know whether they're modifying maybe pulling out more information than they should be you know you're not able to necessarily align your conclusions with their conclusions you know so that is a big alarm bell as well you know if you can't go through and understand it as a at a basic level then you know ask for help approach other people put it online find somebody who knows more and if the people other people don't know more then then definitely question it for sure 
uh, after reading it, you should feel as if it could be replicated, all of the details included. So now that we've started looking at just kind of a broad overview, let's talk about some of the things that we can see within the article that would definitely uh, be red flags. Bias is a huge one. And there's so many different ways, different forms bias can take that we need to know. Again, no math involved, just be a little bit skeptical. There's lots of different shapes and forms it can come in. If there's a conflict of interest, so say somebody, for example, works on the dairy board, and then they are participating in a study about the benefits of cheese. That would be a bias because they obviously have a motivation to make the data look a specific way because they're because of their affiliation. You know, very often it comes back to money, but not always. You know, maybe there's pressures at work to, for different reasons. Maybe, I don't know, there's lots of different reasons. It has to be stated in the article. Right. Yeah. And, and stating your conflicts of interest doesn't necessarily mean that the study itself is not high quality. It's That's that true. There's, we're going through a list of all different little things that could be red flags that could possibly influence, but yeah. having one or the other isn't a guarantee that we should just dismiss it. It's, you know what, now I see where they're coming from. I'm mm -hmm. going to turn on that light bulb in my head and say, oh, okay, well, this person had this conflict or this data set and kind of look at it through that and, and evaluate it maybe a little more critically. Yeah. Like just, Put it through a bit more of a vetting process as you're looking specifically at the results, like right. the methods and the results. Like, how did they get the data? Is there any errors there? And what did they do with the data? Is there any other errors there that we can see? But it has to be stated. And so it will say, typically at the end of the article, sometimes it'll be at the very beginning or the very end, conflict of interest, and they'll say no conflict of interest. Or they will say if they're affiliated with a group, one article I read said that they had written a book on the topic. I think that one was about intermittent fasting and the benefits of it. Excuse me, they had written a book about that topic. And so they obviously are well-versed, but they are a bit biased because that's how they feel enough that they wrote a whole book about it. So it needs to be checked yes. a little bit more. Potential conflicts need to be shared, um, including funding as well. So if it's grant funded, obviously there's less opportunity for bias. It depends on where the, the grant comes from, though. You know, if you have something, for example, funded by the Almond Association of California or whatever that group is called, and suddenly we're talking about the benefits of almond milk, that could be um, definitely a conflict of interest. So, again, the data might be completely factual, completely correct, bang on, but we have to know that going in. Uh, was there a selection bias? So the, the participants that they're using, why are they picking those people? And are we making sure that there's no skewing of that data set either way? Um, when we look at medical history, the most common participants were white men. And so there was a huge difference. There was a huge bias in the information we were learning about all sorts of biology, anatomy, physiology, pathogenesis of things, because things function differently in older white men than they do in lots of other populations a really good example of this is heart attacks right you know for the longest time it was like you know shooting panda in your left arm up your jaw on the left side 
you're having a heart attack, chest pain, but it presents very differently in women. Yes. And it wasn't until they were like, hey, maybe we should look at how, we, how it works in women. Let's see if there's a bias. Oh my God, there is a bias. You know, let's change that, that we start learning, you know, things are different in different groups. So that's something to keep in mind too. And that they have to state that right from the beginning. So where is the study done? What country is it run in? Because that will change the ethnicity or the cultural group that's participating, which is fine. Like I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but we have to know because how things function on a genetic level, biochemical level is a little bit different within different ethnic groups. So we have to be aware of that, right? And then when they were picking who was going to participate, you know, was there a selection bias there? Uh, I love it when you see like 18 to 65, really, because it it is a broad group. And we want to see like they'll do an analysis of like, what's the age spread? We want to see a nice even age spread so that we're getting all sorts of data there. Yeah. And a lot of this has to do with randomization, like getting selecting of diverse group of people or if you are doing a study specifically on you know children in this country then it has mm. to be stated that that's what it is but knowing what population was the study was done in will give you a much better sense on what population the study is applicable to yeah for sure but yeah they just have to be forthcoming with that information yes. so that we're aware you know maybe there's a bias on purpose maybe there's not maybe they're you know, leaving a whole group out. Like we just, we just have to know so that we can use that information appropriately. So that's bias. There are lots of other ways, but those are some of the ones to think of at the beginning. Again, we're not here to like go into super big detail about how to critically evaluate, just some starter things to to get you going on the critical evaluation of everything in the world now it seems uh where did the money come from to fund the study we just talked about that Uh, was there a bias in the variables tested so again if we're looking at like cardiovascular markers but then they're not looking at cholesterol levels the lipid panel you know that's a definite absence you know why did they leave it out maybe they're looking at inflammatory markers maybe genetic but there would be some type of relationship or correlation and so why have they left that out just for example was there a bias in the analysis this is again so in calling bullshit they really talk about it as the black box it's hard to know like you get all this data and then you put it in this like magical black box and then suddenly all this like other information comes out the right, other side. Right. You know, it's hard to see what's going on in that black box. This is a little bit more with statistics and the analysis and the math behind it, which again, most people run in the other direction and I don't blame them, but they should be forthcoming with how they did it so that those that are in the know know that there's a problem and you can go and watch the letters to the editor afterwards if you're so inclined and see what people are writing back because when people when when articles are published some other uh, again peers in that that group in that study group will write into the author or write into the journal and just say like oh by the way there was a small correction it's not something that would necessarily cause retraction but it's enough that it should be commented on right and they add so, those whenever there's a correction they will it's now at the top of the study with yeah. the link to the correction, which is another fairly recent 
thing in. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't think I've seen that yet either. Studies. It's a, uh, you know, they put a box here that correction has been made and then you can click and you can link to it because it makes sense. If you, if you happen to come across the original study and then a correction was published a couple of months later in another uh, issue of the journal, you mm -hmm. know, you need a way to link them together. And of course, on the internet, it makes perfect sense to just link them together. Yeah. And study. No, I love that they're making that easier to follow. There is another, I'll see if I can find it to post it. There's another website you can go check um, that has all of the retracted articles listed. Is it and Retraction so, Watch? It might be. I, I remember checking it. I can't remember what the website is. Right. I'm going to write that down. And then I'll link to that in the show notes as well. That's another big one because sometimes it does get through the peer review process, the publication process, and then they find out a little bit down the road, oh, hey, we shouldn't have published this because for whatever reason, it's not a good study. And so they'll retract it and right. you need to, to be able to go back and check. And I mean, we're seeing it a lot now with COVID because there was such a demand just from the population at large, that information be found and shared. And it wasn't going through the scientific process properly. And so things were getting rushed to be published. And then afterwards, they're like, oh, wait, <laughs> we shouldn't have done that. We, sh we need to retract it. Yeah. And so they, there was a lot of incorrect information being published. Um, so you can go back and check that. We'll link to that in the show notes. And then was there any bias in the interpretation of the results? This can also sometimes be a little bit more challenging, but we're going to talk in just a second about some of the, the common stats terms we're going to see in articles. And so with that, you'll be able to kind of follow the bouncing ball a little bit easier. But even things like looking at, you know, what is significant, you know, if it's right on the cusp or just on the other side of that cusp of what should be deemed significant, sometimes researchers will say you know like even though mathematically it's not significant it's close and so it should be deemed as significant and so there there is that gray zone even in things like is it significant or not you know why is the cutoff 0 0.05 uh, do you even know where that came from <laughs> am i right. opening a can of worms right <laughs> oh you're asking me if i know where it came from i off the top of my head i don't it's something i i may have learned um I can't, I can't I can't per, uh, remember right now I, I just want to circle back one thing kind of one overview of the last part of the podcast I think is that really part of the what I what I'm hearing and what I totally agree with and, and what I know for sure is part of what makes the scientific process rigorous and trustworthy is being transparent yeah so all of the things that you're mentioning on on funding conflicts of interest on the statistical methods that are used all of those things are being transparent and mm -hmm. honest and open about how you collected data and how you use the data and that really is part of why uh, the scientific process as fallible as it is still is the best way to advance knowledge and move forward, knowing that we make mistakes, but also knowing that other brilliant people in the world, when we make things transparent and we show mm -hmm. people all of our data and our methods can do, you know, even like a, a informal peer review and, and, and review and, and try to replicate data. And that's the whole thing is the process. Yeah. of being open and honest about everything so and and being able to be critiqued 
I think having that intellectual humility is something that I see a lot in scientists who have their data open and they're used to being critiqued. I mean, I remember freaking out when I'm, I'm, I'm defending my master's thesis because I'm literally standing in front of my advisor, my co-advisor, other professors, PhD students, and I'm standing there with my, you know, my slides in the old yeah. slide projector behind me and my, my poster and, and my data to defend it. Because the idea is we're all on the same page to make science and knowledge advance. Yeah. And, and we can't do that if we're not open to criticism and we're not honest about what we did in the first place. Yeah. Oh, I totally agree with that. For sure. Thank you for bringing that up. That's a good, that's a very good point. Okay, so considering uh, what to look for with experimental design, and again, this does take a little bit, this is a bit of a, a muscle we need to start working on flexing, building up, because people don't understand how it works. So if this is new to you, definitely take some time to look into it, because how the experiment was run will change, obviously, the data that you're able to gather, the data that you're able to analyze. You know, there are ways that things can be run better than others, and it will affect the quality of the study. So number one, was the study done on humans or not? Typically, the hierarchy there is because we're looking at, you know, what affects humans, you know, or whatever it is that we're trying to look, whatever species we're trying to study, if, if the study isn't done on whatever species we're interested in, you know, that definitely is quite a few degrees of separation between. Have you heard the funny quote I was thinking on it came up and I couldn't find it on Google when I was preparing for this this episode but it was basically it's amazing the amount of money humans have spent trying to improve the health of rodents yeah <laughs> like, yeah there's you, definitely a lot of money right? uh, improving the health of rodents for sure yeah well because they're small they have fairly relative short lives you know they reproduce quickly you know, it's, they're, they're mammals. And there's so many reasons why we do, I mean, my master's thesis yeah. was done on, on rats. I had a whole wall of like 25 rats and I was doing that. And it's just like, I mean, it's valuable information to have. Like I, having animal studies is very valuable. There are some things you can't do yeah. on people and some things you should do on animals before you do on people anyway. It, they're treated very well. Veterinarians are, are on call and, and, mm -hmm. and, but we do need to have that little bit of, okay, how relevant, it, how, at what level can we apply this to humans? Is it like, yes. never going to be like 100% applicable, but it might be 70% applicable or, or yeah. some other level. Yep. No, I agree. I think, I mean, based on that too, just to follow that thread, it's really important to remember every single experiment, study, anything that's done has to be approved by an ethics board. Yep. So, you know, a lot of people talk about the ethics of doing certain experiments and like, it's crazy what people can do, but everything has to be vetted through whether it's within their university or college organization, or if they work in like the medical field, it has to be approved through whatever organization they're with. It has to be approved through an ethics board before any of the steps in the experiment can be taken. So they have to write a proposal. Yep what the experiment is, how it's going to be run, why it's valid, why it's important, how is it going to help? And then they're approved and then they can actually start processing. They cannot take a step before it's been approved. Yep. I, I wrote those papers up for my, for my grad school. I, yeah. It's so, so 
and not a lot of people I don't think realize that and so that was just an important point I wanted to make Um, how many people participated so the the more people that participate uh, the better quality data we're going to get at the other end typically there is a relationship there because we're able to make better generalizations you know so a certain percent of the people that participated were affected by xyz you know so if we have like say 10 people you know 10 percent that's one person that's a lot whereas if we're looking at like 10,000 people that's a thousand people that's that's a much more statistically significant number and so the more participants you have uh the better quality data typically you're going to get out of it the other one is how long did the study go on for you know, especially when we're looking like we we look more at nutritional information. If we have somebody changing their diet for three weeks, it, it's going to have less of an impact than somebody that's able to change their diet for three months to look at long-term effects because things, you know, on a molecular level in the body do take time to trickle down and for the impact to be seen. And so the longer the study goes on, which of course means more money, it's harder to run studies for longer periods of time. But again, there is a correlation to the quality of the study. I think that's extremely important when you're talking about disease endpoints. Mm-hmm. Um, and another thing to keep in mind is sometimes that the sometimes a shorter study will be better if and only if what you're measuring is something that changes very quickly. So, for example, I remember there was a study on gluten, I believe, and eating bread with and without gluten and blood sugar. Mm-hmm. Now, it, it makes sense that you're going to be measuring blood sugar levels over the courses of minutes, yeah, not three days later, three weeks later, three months later. So when you're looking at overall disease risk, yeah, the long-term disease, you want it far out. If you're looking at something very that has, is very variable in the short term, you want a shorter duration of measurement so it's it i mean it makes the the methodology that you use it has to be in line with the outcomes you're trying to determine yeah very very good point we want to look at is this an observational or an experimental study typically within the hierarchy of experiments the experimental studies like rcts which are randomized control trials are the top however even with observational studies we are able to glean quite a bit of valid information, um, but just understanding that there is a difference. Uh, and again, it really just depends on, you know, what they're trying to find out. Did it make sense right. that they used observational versus experimental? So, you know, if we're looking at, you know, we see this with a lot of nurses studies, they do tend to be more observational where they can follow people for a long period of time, like decades sometimes. Yes you know, and they're doing more observational where people come in and they just kind of fill out a questionnaire. There's issues there around that, but they're coming in, they're sharing information about their lives so that data can be collected for extrapolation. So if it makes sense, you don't necessarily want to be manipulating people's lives for long-term because we just don't know what the outcome is. So this is, you know, what's the difference? Is it, does it make sense that this is the way that they approached it? Right. Uh, Was it possible to isolate the variable Um, And we see this, this is a big issue, especially in nutritional studies. You know, it's hard to isolate diet or lifestyle benefits because we can't just do one thing often, you know, like it's, we can't isolate the value of 
vitamin A because we can't take that away from somebody to see what the effects are, right? So there's so many other factors that interplay. So we need to keep in mind that when we're looking at things like that, there's so many other variables and moving parts that there will be other influences. Also something to keep in mind. And the last one I want to mention, how difficult was it for the participants to follow the protocol? So in experimental studies, you know, if you say to somebody, okay, we're going to look at calorie restriction. For example, this is a hot topic in nutrition right now. Oh, yes. You know, if you're going to say, okay, well, I need you to cut down to 50% of your calories for the next three months. If you see a huge number of people dropping out of the study, and they will say that in the materials and methods, yep. you know, we, we gathered people before questionnaires, like, you know, 200 people met the qualifications. However, only 95 finished the study. You know, that's a huge dropout rate. Yes. And that's just numbers I pulled out of my uh thin air let's say so if we have participants that really can't follow the study or if you have a drug for example you know and they just the side effects are so nasty that people can't follow through for the whole study like this is not applicable to real life you have to kind of wonder what's going on so things to think about so now for the scary bit let's talk about some <laughs> of the stats that we're going to see in these studies um, you're going to hear about t-tests most of the time i would say that's one of the more common ones this is just a way of analyzing the data to determine if the outcome was random or not. So we have the cutoff. Uh, this relates to the p-value. So when you're like plugging in all the information, you'll have a cutoff. Typically, what we're going to see is 0.05. P-value has to be equal or less to less than 0.05. And so we're just basically evaluating on that parameter whether this was a random occurrence or because of the variable we're looking at. That's all we're saying. You know, is, is this real or not? The same thing with chi-squared. People see a different term and they're like, oh my god, what's going on? Chi-squared does the exact same thing. It's just a different math formula that's used. That's all. So any statisticians listening are probably cringing right now because I'm not doing it enough service and let uh, us know we would love to interview you on yeah episode. yeah definitely um again i'm not a statistician but these are things i have seen i am familiar with i don't know the math behind it but i do understand what it means at its core you know is it random or is it not is it because of what we manipulated or is it just by chance um the other one we're going to see is correlation and again correlation does not equal causation um we often will see a relationship between how much a variable changes and how much the outcome changes. You'll see this sometimes with regression. And so when we're looking at like dots on a graph and we're able to calculate a line that goes with it, if that line is flat, that's just basically either horizontal or vertical, that means there's really no correlation. But when we have an angle to it, then we start seeing a relationship. And so we can see how tight that relationship is. But again, if you're looking at any type of like scatter plot, so a pretty burst of dots on the graph, and then a line in there, we want to see some type of line that's not completely straight aligned parallel to one of the axes. So that that's correlation. Yeah. So what do their resources look like? We're, we're done with stats now, by the way. So that, that's pretty much all I'm talking about for stats, because it's not, I don't want to overwhelm anybody, scare anybody. Like these are pretty basic things. 
sometimes it gets more complicated, but do you really want to be trying to analyze a paper where you're like, I don't understand what this means. Move on. Right. There's so many other ones out there. Um, And then the last thing we want to look at is do the resources align with the paper and you can have anywhere from like, I don't know, a small handful of articles that they've looked at in background studies to like hundreds, hundreds, depending on how big the study is. And so we want to see that it, it aligns correctly, right? If this is a big paper, there should be a lot of resources. You know, if this is a well-known topic, there should be a lot of resources. If this is a fairly new area of study, we're definitely going to see a lot less, but we want to see what's there. Right. So, and if it's something we know about, or we've done a little bit of research and we're like, hey, they're forgetting about X, Y, Z. Okay, well, you know, what's going on there? So as we, and we see people start getting into niches quite a bit when they're, when they're doing their research. Um, so there's one area that they just love to learn about. And so you almost become the expert. And if they're leaving stuff out, hmm, that's a, that's a red flag. For right. sure. And this is something that's looked at in peer review as well. Like, are they looking at and using the most applicable and most recent and the best quality studies? as part of their study have they have they looked at what's already been done yeah exactly yeah so that's that's pretty much it in terms of the book review they were fantastic books I highly recommend anybody who wants to learn a little bit more to read either or both of them hit up your library let them know to bring them in because this is information a lot of people really should be learning it was a lot of fun reading (laughs) up about this some of the examples they use were fantastic and we'll be uh, adding them to our show notes and putting them on social media so you can see some of the plots we're talking about. But yeah, don't be scared of it. Learn a little bit more and you know, be educated so that you're not fooled. Yep. No, this is definitely eye-opening, I'm sure. Yeah. So thanks for doing this with me. This was awesome. Yeah, this is good. It's, a, it's a such, an, such, such an important topic. And a lot of it comes down to, you know, looking at what's there and does it make sense? Yeah. Does it actually make sense in the realm of what we actually know right now? Yeah. It's no, fantastic. It's, they're good questions to be asking ourselves and others. Um, so, yeah, we talked about a lot of things. We'll be adding all of our resources in the show notes. So if you want to go back to the original source, you know how to do that now. <laughs> yes, please do. And if you have any comments, any corrections, anything to share, please reach out on social media. Let us know. We are not the experts in this. We are just trying to... Uh, help other people learn a little bit more, but we always have stuff to learn as well. Yes. So yeah. Awesome. Um, Yeah. Thank you very much for listening. Other thanks. Thank you to Joseph McDade for the music. Please rate us and rate reviews on any of our podcast platforms. We would love to hear how we're doing. And give us ideas on what studies and topics you would like us to chat about. Yeah, what does everybody want to learn about? Please let us know because what we feel we want to learn about might not be what you do. So share. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Lindsay.